This is the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into a story that's shaping the future of food. I'm Food Navigator editor Katie Askew, and today we'll be taking a look at how the coronavirus crisis is likely to impact food sector innovation. Consumers are basically changing their their habits uh, in a really transformational manner. COVID-19 has touched every part of our lives, changing the way people eat, shop and think about food. But what does this mean for the food industry? And as the world emerges from lockdown, what new behaviours and business realities will stick in the new normal? Hi, Katie. Um, Alon here. I'm the CEO and co-founder of TasteWise. TasteWise is an AI platform that monitors consumer conversations in real time. Its data and analytics help food industry customers adapt to rapidly changing consumer trends. So, what big changes has Chief Executive Alon Chen seen since the onset of the pandemic? Some of the interesting uh, insights we've seen is that people are actually uh, spending a lot, a lot more time cooking. So, obviously, everybody's been talking about the, the sourdough breads and, and baking in general that we see all over Instagram. So, we are all bakers now. But actually, we're seeing across the board that people are actually taking the time to cook uh, recipes that take longer. So recipes with longer uh, cooking times are actually accelerating. Uh, We're also seeing in the home category, um, we're seeing uh, meal kits, uh, the HelloFresh and the Blue Aprons of the world. We're actually seeing a huge acceleration in meal kits, a category that a few months ago was already uh, stagnating. So that's a big transformation uh, from, you know, from the home cooking. Time on our hands and fewer eating out options has inspired the budding home cooks amongst us. Interest is also spiking in certain ingredients as coronavirus hammers home the link between diet and health. But surprisingly, Alon says not all healthy categories have fared well during the lockdown. We were actually very curious to look at the, um, at the weight loss um, movement around the COVID-19. And we were very surprised to see actually a negative uh, references to weight loss. There is a, a 20% uh, decrease in uh, weight loss uh, year over year. And we've, we tried to look into the data to be able to understand why is that. Weight loss is a much longer process and COVID-19 is actually now. So that might be one aspect, but we do see a, a huge increase in the decisions around immunity. So as I mentioned, all, all sort of nutrients and vitamins and the antioxidants and so on. But we also see specific references to the immune system. Uh, we've seen a 360% growth in the number of people that actually care about their immune system. So we have not seen any new ingredients. We're seeing the chamomile. We're seeing kombucha. We're seeing melon. We're seeing a lot of fermentation because we know that it has a lot of probiotics. Um, and, and it's something that we found that in in this like extreme uh, situation, people are not necessarily going to go after new things. They actually go to the uh, things that are more common and they're, they're already used to be in their pantries. Alon says that the rapid pace of coronavirus disruption makes it more important than ever for food innovators to get access to real-time consumer insights. And here, tech is proving a great enabler. Today, more than ever, you need to respond we know that the development processes and timelines are very, very long in the, in the traditional uh, food uh, market. So it takes everything between 12 to 18 months to be able to bring a new product to the shelf, right? Now, if you're a company that wants to um, 
stay stick around for long, you need to understand that everything in your organization must be uh, accelerated. And and occasions and events like COVID nineteen uh, make it very very clear that. Uh, if you can only understand your consumers once or twice a year when you're running a survey, uh, you're not going to survive because you need to know month over month what is, or at least, uh, you know, a month over month to be able to respond. Alon says the stressor of COVID-19 has accelerated the uptake of tech-based solutions, delivering much needed clarity for the industry. Who drove digital transformation for your organization? A, your CEO. B, your CTO, and C, COVID-19. And I think that, especially in the food industry, a lot of the innovation is actually going to be driven by COVID-19. We've been very busy uh, on the business side to be able to address uh, new requests from, uh, from existing, but also new customers that understand that their need to adopt artificial intelligence um, is not a privilege anymore. It's a necessity to keep your business running. And and um, it's been, uh, you know, it's been, since we started Casewide, it's been a journey to educate a lot of the customers on the need of real time and what is real time. And and the kind of things that, that Casewide, but not only Casewide, the market at, at large, is able to do today with artificial intelligence was not possible three years ago. For a market that's been there for for as long as people were alive in the commercial world, obviously the food industry, uh, there's a lot of old habits that actually need to pick up with uh, with with the new technology. Whether it is you know what we do for uh, better understanding your consumers and accelerating your business and marketing, but also when it comes to supply chain management. If COVID-19 placed innovation processes under pressure, the stress on the supply chain was more evident still. As shoppers came to understand the implications of the crisis and prepare for potential periods of isolation or shortage, there was a run on store cupboard staples. Empty shelves were a feature of the early days of the crisis, and while the stocked shelves at this supermarket stand testament to the resilience of the sector, food security remains in the spotlight. Panic buying may test suppliers to the limit, but spikes in demand are not the only problem food makers will face. Companies may have to contend with reduced production or warehousing capacities due to labour shortages. Moving products around could also turn out to be an issue, especially if transportation routes are affected due to border closures. Supply chain specialist Futuremaster worked with customers on the ground in China, where the pandemic originated, to keep supplies moving in the face of unprecedented disruption, from transportation issues to the forced shutdown of factories and warehouses. The tech company leveraged its AI platform for demand forecasting to take stock of supply on hand and to see where supplies needed to be moved to. In Europe, it's helping its food industry customers manage some of the issues that coronavirus is raising. Well, thank you for inviting me to join the podcast. My name is Victoria Ross. I'm a sales executive and account manager for Futuremaster UK. Um, We're part of a global organisation, Futuremaster, and we provide supply chain planning solutions um, to customers around the world. We've got um, about almost 600 customers globally, uh, more than 12,000 user licenses, and our customers use our solutions um, for statistical forecasting, demand planning, um, supply planning, and optimization of their supply chain. Thanks very much, Victoria. So, what has the situation on the ground looked like? What are some of the big issues that COVID has raised for food makers? When I've been speaking to my customers, um, 
and, and talking about the supplier challenges that they're up against. Um, I mean, a lot of them have got contracts in place with their suppliers. So when you look at, say, one of my customers is a, a, a UK-based bakery company providing bread and bagels and crumpets and wraps and things into the UK supermarkets. Um, and so they're contractually bound um, with the flour suppliers. So they don't have a problem with supply in that aspect, in that they, they know it's um, fairly available because they've got contracts in place to protect them. But the real risk is the unknown. So they might have the contracts in place, but their confidence level of on-time full deliveries um, is, is low because of the logistical challenge posed by border control um, and limited movement of people due to the restrictions in not wanting to pass the virus. And it's, it's about workforce predictability as well when it comes to logistics. Um, and we're seeing um, customers react to that um, in a number of different ways, actually. Um, some of them are reacting by limiting their ranges um, to limit disruptions to, to production lines. So where they've seen a massively increased demand, um, that the bakery um, company that I just mentioned have, have made a decision to limit their lines, make less of the products which require a heavy clean down after running through the lines. So products which contain allergens like nuts and seeds um, require really very um, heavy clean down afterwards. And so they're just not running those items. They're sticking to their core items and making sure they can get as much out as quickly as possible. Um, similarly, I work with a um, biscuit producer um, and they've decided that they're only going to supply supermarkets with branded items rather than the own label that they would normally be sending in um, because of the packaging constraints um, in production. Um, packaging is often the biggest bottleneck in food production and they can make as much of the products as they like, but it's getting them into the right packets um, that, that sort of holds up production. And so they've sort of limited lines of, say, cookies um, where it's uh supermarket own brand right they might normally offer 10 different types but you'll see only a very limited range going into the supermarkets and again that's an effort to um, get past these problems. AI and machine learning is having a massive impact on supply chain efficiency and also demand forecasting but just like the rest of us these tools have never faced a crisis of COVID-19 scale and significance. Very interesting for us because um, sort of our primary tool is statistical forecasting. It's a demand planning tool. And um, of course, when we are confronted with an event like this, we've got no history to use to enable statistical forecasting to accurately predict these fluctuations in demand. We've never seen anything like this COVID crisis before. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And so from a planning perspective, um, it's very difficult to leverage that technology immediately. But it's all about having the, the ability to simulate different changes in demand, model your supply chain and model lots of different scenarios. So imagine what might happen, start to model what that would look like and where the constraints are going to be in your supply chain to meet that different demand. And then plan against those different scenarios um, to enable your companies to become very reactive. So we're seeing lots of companies um, using scenario modelling to better understand what might happen and then plan their response accordingly and be able to react very quickly and become more agile in reaction to that. Um, we're seeing customers um, who have a fully costed supply chain model um, in their planning tool are able to react quickly and make decisions based on the data with full visibility of the cost and profitability of the, de the decisions that they're making. 
So where they've got a fully costed supply chain, they've got a um, comprehensive view of their suppliers' capacity and constraints, and they're able then to collaborate with suppliers to utilise that capacity effectively and maximise the profitability. Um, another trend that we're seeing um, with uh, customers and prospects actually is wanting to accelerate um, implementation of tools. So companies who haven't got adequate planning tools um, currently um, feel like they're late to the party. They want to be able to react to this situation and they're wanting to get on board very quickly. So we're um, able to deliver sort of a, a stripped back version of a supply chain planning tool what we're calling a minimal viable product um, to enable short-term scenario planning and get companies on board very quickly. So we're sort of trying to quickly get in a tool which enables these companies to scenario plan and then layer functionality on top of that as time goes on. And that's enabling them to understand the demand volatility and react quickly to what's happening. Like TasteWise, FutureMaster has witnessed an increase in the use of real-time data in a sector notoriously protective of its sales data sets, collaboration and data sharing is also on the up as the whole chain comes together in response to the COVID crisis. So we're seeing a lot of our customers are using very short term forecasting techniques. Um, they're collaborating heavily with their customers to understand what the customers think is going to happen. Seeing customers um, in the food um, collaborating heavily with supermarkets, um, understanding what their seeing on the floor again hourly sort of a couple of times a day they're getting updates on um, demand and they're using that data to um, to look very very short term at how they're going to meet demand using the capacity they have available. Yeah absolutely we are certainly seeing a shift towards real time in the very short term um, real time information sharing um, and, and collaboration I mean really I have to say it's a very positive thing what we're seeing with a lot of our customers in the way that they're collaborating with their suppliers and they're collaborating with their customers in a real effort sort of nationally to make sure that we have availability in our supermarkets and I think we're, we're seeing the knock-on effect of that in that you know toilet roll is available <laughs> um, but the supermarkets are well stocked and it's that sort of collaborative sharing of data that's um, that's enabling that. Collaboration is also at the heart of how many food and beverage SMEs are weathering the COVID storm. According to UK government data, SMEs in the F&B sector account for 97% of all companies, 28% of all employment and 19% of turnover in the industry. Young Foodies is the largest UK community for FMCG startups, scale-ups and challenger brands. Here's co-founder Theodora Alexander on how the coronavirus crisis has impacted the sector's vibrant startup community. Yeah, so I think it's been, it's sad to say it's been a re really mixed bag. Um, and I think it comes back to a number of key factors in our, in our brand. So the first factor is what category are they in? Um, really basic. So if they are in a kind of core grocery category like our quinoa brands or um, or a rice brand or a, a sources brand that would sit in that aisle, they have, they've done really, really well. Um, ketchups, condiments, those kinds of take home products. Um, the flip side is, is impulse brands have really, really suffered. Um, and that's not just because people aren't kind of out and about grabbing a chocolate bar, um, but also because uh, the second big factor in our community that's impacted is, is their distribution channels. 
So the impulse brands tend to be sold in cafes, um, food service sites, and the out of home. When no one is out of home, it means that no one is buying the products or the sites are, are closed. So for brands in those categories, they've been really, really badly hit. Um, and then there's just more operational things that I think we've seen across the community. So, you know, when was their last fundraise? Um, how, what's the kind of cash levels in the business? We are um, in a part of the industry that's incredibly reliant on our cash flow. Um, and, you know, brands are only ever looking forward, say, six months. So if they're forward looking six month period, um, they had planned to raise capital. What you now know is their cash reserves have probably been, been kind of uh, dwindled somewhat. So, um, so yeah, the, the stage in their investment cycle has also played quite a big role. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's hard to say that the whole community has experienced this one thing from, from coronavirus. I think every single brand, depending on those factors, investment cycle, their distribution channels, um, their categories, and even their teams uh, has, has been impacted quite differently. Has retail arranging also um, changed? I, I hear a lot that there's more competition for shelf space and that smaller brands are struggling. Yeah, I think it depends on the retailer. Um, we've had we've heard mixed things. I think there's it's definitely fair to say that um, all the retailers have come forward and said the range of views, so the new business type things, um, the range of views for the foreseeable are kind of off the table and we'll review ranges again start thinking about them in in august september time um and i think and of course promotions have been um put on hold and and there have been a number of different things like that um i think as much as possible the retailers have been trying to support the smaller suppliers not just because of the gscot legislation but also because um, they see the role that those suppliers play in their range. But I think, yeah, there's, there was no doubt probably two, three weeks ago, maybe more now, a real squeeze on the retailers' supply chains and they needed to get uh, loo roll and tinned goods through the supply chain as a priority. And what that meant was very naturally um, non-core, non-essential SKUs were deprioritized. Um, I, I think that started to settle now that the retailer supply chains have settled somewhat. Another change ushered in by COVID and the sense of food, social and economic insecurity that it's brought is an increased consumer interest in local. As Alan from TasteWise explains, there is a real consumer desire to support businesses operating within the community. Local businesses and small medium businesses, um, basically some of the things we were so excited to see in the first uh, uh, few days was the huge uptake in people's uh, uh, local consumption. So a lot of the consumption around coronavirus was um, was helping your small medium business. So the 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 farmers that, uh, for instance, in Israel, uh, for the first time ever, most farmers that used to only sell their goods to big companies are now coming to the neighborhood in central Tel Aviv and they're selling their goods directly to the consumers and, uh, and trying to actually make their living. And I think that people were very kind uh, also in the U.S. Uh, with a lot of activities to donate to the small, medium businesses and restaurants that, that you care and like. 
And and so this is something really heartwarming. And I, and I think that even going forward, we'll uh, we'll make sure that uh, you know we're helping as much as we can the small medium businesses. And um, and uh, I'm calling you know all of you, all of our listeners, to uh, uh, join us and support their local businesses. Is this something Young Foodies has seen in its community? And if so, how can this goodwill be translated to new sales? Is local production and direct consumer going to play a bigger role in the future of food? Yeah, I, I think I think that we've definitely seen that, um, and there's a lot of goodwill across the industry. I think the challenge is um, this kind of renewed focus on local and uh, and all of that. Again, it only supports those brands that are have the right channel distribution. So if they've got an online presence, which for many they don't, um, or if they've got they're, they're present in their local in, in local independence and, and so on and can continue the supply chain through to supply those um so yes i think that has the all the positive goodwill of supporting smaller brands um is there from the consumer it's just whether or not the brand the individual brand can unlock that okay and you're behind the launch of a new direct to consumer platform yeah so mighty small came about it was something we've always wanted to um always thought about because Direct to consumer is um, is incredibly fragmented and um, and is really challenging to the brands to manage. Um, you know, if you imagine it from a consumer's perspective, going onto we've got a thousand brands, will the consumer go onto a thousand web shops and purchase one case and pay for postage and packaging? Um, almost certainly not. And so there's always going to be that kind of challenge of fragmentation. And I think. Um, what we've we've seen that amplified in the last three four weeks is um, as brands that are traditionally grocery brands are trying to suddenly become online uh, first brands, um, and so Mighty Small was there to basically cre- has come about to create a really easy route to market for those brands. We're not Amazon, we're not Ocado, we don't have the same kind of listing processes and massive supply chain challenges all we are is one central web shop where all of our brands can be listed and we set it all up um we manage all the supply chain all we say to the brands is look get your products to this depot and we will deal with everything else um and we give them that that outlet basically and at the same time it's a great way from a consumer perspective for that shopper to go to one place and discover new exciting innovative products that that british startups are, are bringing to market do you expect the online shift to persist after the crisis when you know we're all free to wander to the shops as much as we like yeah i do actually i think um i think the this process has accelerated change in so many different ways um i think obviously online is the fastest growing channel anyway um and has seen a steady growth um, for the last 10 years. Um, and what this has done is, is I think, two things. One is um, force the consumer to start thinking about it and taking it seriously and, and embedding it into a, a habit. And I think, you know, there's all these studies saying you need to do something seven times for it to be seen as a habit. Um, and now with the extension of, of the lockdown, it feels like people are going to get into that habitual state with it. And at the same time, I think on the other side, it's it's accelerated the progress online. So, um, you know, 
Lord knows that um, that Ocado can now handle a very different level of volume than they ever would have been able to. Um, all of the online supermarkets are now 10 times stronger because they've had been given no choice but to progress their, their online proposition. Um, and a number of D2C sites have, have really stepped up their game in response. So I think, I think the shape of online has, has massively improved in the last month. Um, and, with, uh, and I do think consumers will, will stick. Uh, and for me, that hasn't changed anything fundamental. I think we, you can read any number of reports that say, you know, the future of the high street is about discovery and experience and, and consumers, I still think, will continue to do that. Um, but the practical side of ordering and stuff like that, I do think people start moving online. But not everyone in the sector is convinced this drive to local will benefit smaller brands or businesses. My name is Julian Millington. I run a company called New Nutrition Business, where specialist consultants in the business end of food, nutrition and health. You probably guessed by my accent where I'm from, but we do 95% of our business outside the UK, helping companies large and very small, down to two people startups, commercialise new product ideas and understand markets. Julian doesn't necessarily see the drive for local sourcing playing into the hands of smaller businesses. The trend towards things being more more local, towards provenance, if you like, is not new. It's been around for 10 years. Um, I think what's happened is that the health crisis has rather accelerated that trend a little. Um, and I don't think it's a question of either or. I think there's opportunities for both large and small uh, companies with a local edge. So starting from the, the kind of the end, if you like, you know, it was just before Christmas that Danone launched a yogurt brand in France called Fruit d'ici. That means fruits from here. And what they do is the, the whole brand is positioned around the sourcing of the different fruits in the yogurt from different regions of France, and even um, what region the yogurt itself is made in. So it's an incredibly intense, uh, provenance sort of message about all of the ingredients, about all the sourcing. And that's because Danone had seen, and lots of companies have seen, that trend gathering over the past 10 years. So that's at the top end, and you'll see lots more businesses doing that. And there's kind of an opposite end, where you have really small businesses serving a locality. They have been gradually gaining more and more ground in recent years, um, sometimes because producers you know, have wanted to move away from, from working through the big supermarkets just in order to improve their margins. So a very good example is a Scottish dairy business called Mosquil, and it's one farm. And they moved away from supplying bulk milk for, to, for cheese processing, and they um, set up a, a delivery business. They created their own brand. They put vending machines into selected stores, created a very strong identity, and, uh, and they've made a successful $2 million turnover business out of it. And they say they make a much bigger margin than they ever did before. So those are the two poles. So it works for both ends. But what you mustn't forget is there have always been local brands um, that existed between those two points that perhaps people have taken for granted. So, again, use a Scottish example. There's a company called Graham's Family Dairy. They've emphasized their provenance, the fact that it's a family business for maybe 20 years. And uh, it's a $100 million turnover business and a very profitable one by dairy standards. So um, there's, there's space for everybody in the new world of local mattering more. New nutrition business recently conducted some research that highlighted the limitations of the startup world. 
With significant pressure on profitability and no ability to leverage scale, Julian emphasises that the Chibanis or beyond meats of this world are few and far between. Very few startups actually become unicorns. We've all been very focused, I think, for the past 10 years on how startups are supposedly redefining the, the grocery landscape. And that is true to some extent. But what I think a lot of people forget is that the really successful startups we look at mostly um, started before 2010. They've been around a long time. Uh, what we did was we went to, to look at the finances of a sample of startups because what we were hearing from investors, from private equity people, venture capital groups, and large companies who bought startups was that most of them had terrible financials and failed to achieve any scale. Um, and in fact, what our research revealed was that the a startup is the best way to incinerate your cash short of going to a race course. And to be perfectly honest, having seen a lot of startups over the years, I would go and bet on horses at the races rather than invest in one right now. The reality is that uh, retailers um, learned um, that having interesting, cool startups in the aisle in your supermarket was a great way to draw customers into the aisle because we're all neophiles. You know, we all like new foods and new ideas and new brands. And it was a pretty low risk option for the retailer because you put in a few new brands and then you discover the one or two that were really successful and then the others would gradually just naturally disappear. But with a shelf space already at a premium before the crisis and now even more a premium because people are doing more shopping in the retailer instead of going out to food service, that pressure on space means they'll be looking much harder at how much money per square meter they're making off those little startups. And unfortunately, that means that they'll be looking at the ones who were just you know, there for marketing, really, and never really generated much cash, and they'll disappear. So there'll be much less space for them to be around. So small, cool startups are going to have to decide. Are they going to settle for being, say, a small local brand, as we were discussing just now, a regional brand, a niche brand with an identity, identity of its own? Or do they still want to aspire towards becoming that thing that becomes big and achieves scale and you, you, know, you sell it to a big corporation? My advice to anyone who's running a small food company is to focus on the first one and forget the second one because the terrible financials of startups had already caused people to shy away from buying them even before the crisis. So if you can make your business generate a modest profit and you know, five or 10 million euros or five or 10 million dollars of sales and you can run it as your own private business, then that's fine. That's a really good strategy to have. But if your ambitions are to be more than that, you are going to be disappointed. You're going to open up a world of misery for yourself. Um, so it's, it's up to you and your shareholders to have a frank conversation about what the future brings. Working my way through the different trends that COVID is feeding into, one of the clear conclusions I'm drawing is that it seems to be an accelerator of trends that were already existing in the marketplace. Do you think that that's a fair conclusion? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a really, really good observation you just made. I think it's far too easy for people to come along and say, you know, the coronavirus crisis will change everything because that's not what history shows. What history shows is the very thing that you just said is that there are usually pre-existing trends. They, often, they may be small, too small to notice for some people, but they're there and crises accelerate those changes. So that's what wars did. All the First and Second World War did was to accelerate some pre-existing um, uh, developments in society. And that has been the case throughout the whole of history. Now, if you go back to the Black Death in the 14th century, what emerged after the Black Death was the peasants who survived had a lot more independence. They controlled their own land. Well, actually, you know, they'd been pushing for that in the years before the Black Death. 
they'd already been trying to free themselves of feudal control. So, um, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I think the big problem in our industry is not enough people bother to study history. And by history, I mean even anything that happened 10 or 20 years ago. We, we have very much have, have like a, a today focus. Um, and the lessons of all history and of our own industry is existing trends accelerate. Nothing new comes along. Um, so to, to Warren Buffett, the uh, billionaire investor famously said, you know, when the tide co goes out, you can see who's swimming without their trunks on. And that's essentially what we're going to see over the next two to three years. Perhaps the biggest impact of COVID won't be the changes that it ushers in, but rather the recession that follows. What will this mean for food makers? Yeah, well, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit like we've taken a step back 20 years, I think. So we've had the big push towards small single serve packages um, over the past 20 years. And there's been many good reasons for that. But there's going to be a bit more of a tendency for people to watch their budgets and to buy more economical, larger packs. So that's already showing up in people's purchases is a, a move towards larger pack sizes. Um, we won't see that immediately because I think the difficulty is there, the full economic consequences have yet to be felt. So it's probably going to be a year or two years down the road before people notice that consumers are preferring large packs over small packs. Um, the consequence of that is if you're in the snacking business, you'd better be coming up with a snack which is completely delicious and people find easy to buy. Um, like potato chips, for example. You know, if you're in the potato chip business, you'll be fine because if people are going to buy small packs of snacks, they're going to buy things that they know they enjoy and feel like value for money. Um, the uh, other change, I think, is uh, things that are kind of fashionable purchases will tend to lose some of the momentum. If something's fashionable, it tends to be a bit expensive. Um, I think we're not going to hear people say consumers all want to buy TEF or you know some sort of nonsense like that that's been forecast for the past two or three years. You know, new grains like TEF are very expensive. So yes, a small percentage of people will buy those, but it's going to be tiny because only a small percentage of people are going to be willing to risk their budgets on that. Um, most people are going to think even harder about buying something that's new and different. So um, I think in terms of product development, anything which is about bringing the familiar or reinventing the familiar and focusing on taste and indulgence, that's all going to fly with people because that is what tends to fly when times are hard. And doing something that's amazingly innovative and new and different and introducing people to things that never had before, that's going to be even more difficult than it was. The only way you can maybe get around that is by connecting to some of their current anxieties. So if you're doing something radically new and different and it's local, or radically new and different and it boosts your immunity, then that's fine. But beyond those two areas, it's going to be really hard. In many ways, COVID-19 marks a before and after point for society. As we emerge into the post-corona new normal, what seems clear is that challenging times await us all. You've been listening to the Food Navigator podcast, and I'm Katie Askew. Join us next time when we'll be discussing food waste.